This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Today is November 9th, 2022. Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis. And as always, joined by my co-host, the wonderful Simon Belanger. Welcome into the show, Simon. We are, I don't know why we've been so news focused. I think that's why, but it's been a while since we just went back to basics and talked high level, long-term investing type stuff, which is so refreshing as always. So I'm pumped for this. Yeah, same for me. I mean, it's always fun to talk about news happening, uh, crazy news happening, actually, but uh, we'll have more <laughs> insane yeah, news. We'll have yes. more than enough to talk about for the uh, next Thursday release uh, next week or this week, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, running a financial podcast that 50% of the time we talk about the news, it's nice when the news is spicy hot fire coming off. So we'll talk about that on the Thursday release. All right. I'm going to kick us off here. We got lots of topics. I'm going to do a quick excerpt here. You're going to talk about net asset value, that NAV number we see all the time. I have two listener questions here. We haven't done listener questions in a while, and I think that these are two particularly good listener questions, so we'll get to that. And then you're going to talk about asset allocation. First, out of the gate here, I have an old excerpt from this book here that the bookmark just came flying out of the book. Nice. It's an old excerpt from Chris Middleman's shareholder letter, and it's taken out of the foreword from uh, 100 Baggers by Chris Meyer, who's a great guy as well, by the way. Here's what it is. It's, imagine if a friend had introduced you to Warren Buffett in 1972 and told you, I've made a fortune investing with this Buffett guy over the past 10 years. You must invest with him. So you check out Warren Buffett and you find his investment vehicle, Berkshire Hathaway, had indeed been an outstanding performer, rising from about $8 in 1962 to $80 at the end of 1972. That's quite quite the return. Impressed, you bought the stock at $80 on December 31st, 1972. Three years later, on December 31st, 1975, Berkshire Hathaway stock now traded at $38. So three years later, you had a 53% drop over a period in which the S&P 500 only lost 14%. You might have dumped it in disgust at that point and never spoken to your friend again. Yet over the next year, it rose from 38 to 94. By December 31st, 1982, it was 775 on its way to the (laughs) whopping $223,000 a share a compounded annual growth rate of 20.8% over the past 42 years. Dude, more than 20% compound annual growth on the share price of Berkshire Class A stock over 42 years. What does Berkshire uh, Class A trade for today? Because this is an old excerpt. Yeah, it's six digits still, yeah. $436,000. So it's 2 x almost exactly since this excerpt. Right. But it's an interesting thing. And Chris Mayer just basically says in the book, I have to print this out and frame it. And I agree. And I wanted to start today's show with this because there's a lot of dunking 
in the financial news world and in the investing world where you could have been amazing for 20 years. You have two years of underperformance and the market's like, oh, you lost it. Or like, you don't have your edge anymore. You don't know what you're doing. The last 20 years was luck. When in reality, that two-year period is just a blip in the radar for long-term investors like Mr. Warren Buffett here. And so it's just a reminder to zoom out, one, and two, don't judge skill based on pretty much anything less than three to five up to 10 years. At that point, you probably have a good sample size to know if you actually know what you're doing. But don't get frustrated and think you don't know what you're doing or professional investors or your friend don't know what they're doing based on like a year or two of performance. It's just not enough substance to make any real conclusion of skill. And I think that this is an awesome little excerpt and with real data from Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. And if you only have a year or two in front of you, then you probably should not be in the stock market. Right. Exactly. Because even this company, which was executing the whole time, Berkshire Hathaway, in three years period, it saw 52% drawdown. Were the fundamentals impaired? No. And so there is a huge disconnect in the short term between business fundamentals and share price. And so you can't expect the market to be rational in a short term. And so react accordingly. If you need money in the next 12 months, it shouldn't be fully invested in the stock market, right? Like, that's just the reality. Yeah. And if if you do, then just be prepared to not have the desired outcome. I mean, I, I would not recommend it, but I've heard a lot of people doing that in the past couple of years because they wanted to put a down payment on a house, house. and yeah. investing was the only way to do it because getting something that yielding one, two, three percent, even five percent now with interest rates being up, down payments require the down payment you'll need to buy a house in certain cities will be tens of thousands of dollars. So that's the only way for them in their mind to achieve that. So as long as you're aware of it, that you may have a drawdown on that capital, but for sure, like if you need capital preservation, stock market short term is not a place to be. Yeah, well put, right? Like the stock market is a wonderful wealth generation machine, but people got all out of sorts with expectations that the market just doubles every year. You know, like that's not the reality. It's never been the reality in the short term. Sure, there are definitely bull runs that make it seem like printing money (laughs) via trading stocks is a reality. And then you realize it's not really quick. Yeah. The market, you know, you know, like bitch slaps you, like that's not reality. And you learn pretty quick. And so I think that this is a interesting excerpt. And I might take a page out of Chris Meyer's book here, no pun intended, and print this on the wall as well, because it speaks a lot to not only how ridiculously good Warren Buffett has been, but also that even that stock has had huge drawdowns and look at where it trades today. And that he's still alive. Props to him. (laughs) Yeah, whatever. I was going to say, I need to do what he's doing, but I know what he's doing. And it's eating poorly and drinking Coca-Cola. So I don't know if I'm going to be on, I don't know if I'm going to be on the Warren Buffett diet, but good for him. Him and Munger still crushing it. Is Mr. Munger turning a hundred this year? Um, I don't know. Because I said that he was last year, but he was actually turning 99, which was my mistake. 
No, he's 98. Yeah, he's turning nine. I'd turn 99 next okay. year. This guy, he's going to make it to 100. I'm very confident he might fall asleep during the annual shareholder meeting again, but we'll give him a break at the uh, young age of 99. And now we'll go and talk about net asset value, like you alluded to that. So it's something we haven't really talked about. We've had some question over the time, so I'll just explain what it is and how you can see it vary sometimes as well compared to what you'll be paying. So first, you'll hear about it quite a bit. So it's just NAV. That's usually what we'll hear when you're talking about funds in general. So NAV is just a way to show what the value of a fund is per share. So you take all the assets that the fund has and subtract its liabilities. So if you want to have it per share, obviously, you just divide it by the amount of shares that are available for that fund specifically. So for an ETF that holds equities, its NAV will be all the value of its equities and any cash that the fund holds minus any liabilities that the fund will have because obviously funds do have some expenses and oftentimes if you have an ETF, if it's an index ETF, it'll be a bit different. But if you have an ETF that's not indexed, they may have a couple percentage in cash. That's not unusual. So to have it per share, then you divide it by the amount of shares outstanding. For an ETF traded in the U.S., the NAV will be calculated once the market closes. And I'm pretty sure it's like that in Canada, too. For the most part, the ETF will trade pretty closely to its NAV since that is the goal, since it's an open-ended fund. However, there are some funky things that can happen for funds that are listed, say, on another exchange or tracking businesses listed on another exchange. So especially if you have these ETFs that track, let's say, an ETF listed in the US, but it's an ex-US ETF, meaning that it tracks stocks worldwide, but not the ones in the US. So that's because the foreign stock market may not be trading while the US ETF is and vice versa. So you can have some discrepancies versus the NAV and the actual market value there might be some discrepancies there. Anything you want to add before I continue? Nope, this is good. It's a term that, especially if you're investing in ETFs, is one that you have to have at least a base level of what it is. It's like, what are the terms you should probably know of? ETF investing is so easy. That's the point of it, right? The whole point of it is that it's very passive. Like net asset value, MER, which is the fee, and like what the holdings are, are like the three things that I'm absolutely going to be looking at every time. Yeah, no, exactly. And the once a day calculation is really important to remember because since the price of an ETF is based on offer and demand, it's normal that the fund may trade slightly below or above its NAV because it's calculated at the end of the trading day. So because of that, it's normal because at any point in time during the trading day, the NAV is going to be slightly outdated. Now, some funds can trade at significant premiums or discount to the NAV. Typically, those will be close-ended funds. And I can do another segment on close-ended versus open-ended funds. ETFs are generally open-ended funds. But I'll take a close-ended fund here just to show how the NAV and the actual price can be really different. And the one that I think is really fascinating, and you'll see I have a graph that I took here, is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. So ticker GBTC. And GBTC is a close-ended fund. It was basically the only option before the ETF. So a lot of the Canadians ETF tracking Bitcoin started trading. So 
whether you're into Bitcoin or not, it's really irrelevant here. Just I thought this one was just a really good example to show the discrepancy between the price of the fund and its actual NAV. Now, prior to 2021, the fund was trading at a premium to its NAV because, like I said, it was one of the only options, if not the only for a while, sometimes as high as 50%, 5-0, above the net asset value. That was because there's no other option for a lot of people who didn't want to hold Bitcoin, the actual Bitcoin. That was the only option they could have. Now, in early 2021, when a bunch of ETFs in Canada and other countries launched tracking BTC, it really put a damper on that NAV premium. And since then, it's been trending downwards. And right now, it's around 36% as a discount to its NAV. So if you pull a chart, it's really crazy. You pull a five-year chart of GBTC premium or discount to its net asset value, it's insane. It actually starts and it starts slowing down and there's a kind of middle axis and then it crosses the zero point and then goes into the negative. So that's a really good example. There are other funds. Usually the close-ended funds are the ones that will have either a premium or discount associated with them. Now, explain like I'm five here. Why? Because I'm looking at this chart here and there's a huge discrepancy and it eventually crosses the zero point on the axis that you talked about where it goes from a huge premium to the NAV to a huge discount to the NAV. What are the forces at play here for the left side of the chart versus the right side of the chart here? Like why would it trade at a huge premium and why would it trade at a huge discount? Just like very high level for the people. offer and demand it's that simple exactly right right it's offer and demand so what happens in the case of gbtc is like i said there was no other option a lot of institutional investors specifically were looking at ways to get bitcoin exposure and then prior to 2021 gbtc was one of the only options as a retail investor you could also buy some individual shares and then what Also, what's happening here is the investor, the institutional investor could buy it at the NAV. So actually, they could buy it at the net asset value and they could, I think there was a locking period for six months or something. And then when it would be over, they could sell it as a profit, assuming that it was still trading at a premium. Individual investors, they could only buy it at the market price. But at the end of the day, it's really an offer and demand. The case of GBTC, it's just because once ETFs came into play, they were lower fees on the one hand, and they were much easier for investors and friendly to certain type of accounts, specifically registered account compared to, I don't believe GBTC is eligible for those accounts, if I remember correctly, because I had done some research on that. Okay. So you're seeing here the dynamics of the demand for the ETF change quite drastically. This is an example where it trades at a quite severe discount to the NAV, as you can see there. Yeah. And even like if people say, well, you know, it's all about the bull and bear market, actually, it's not true. So if you look at the price of Bitcoin, where it was trading at a significant NAV, even when there was the uh, market crash in 2020, 
cryptocurrency and Bitcoin actually crashed. And in 2018, and you had the big crash of late 2017, early 2018, it was trading at like a 50 plus premium. So it doesn't really have anything to do with the bear market that uh, we're in right now. It's really an offer and demand. And there was just not many other options for this type of product. Gotcha. Yeah. There's like legit competitive forces at play for the product of the ETF product being out there as one of the options for investors. Let's move on to a listener question from our buddy, Joe. Here it goes. Hey guys, love the show. Either you are great or I'm getting old because the podcast has replaced Pantera for deadlift day. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'd like to say we're great, but Joe, you're just getting old, my man. That's, uh, that's, just, that's just how it goes. I was wondering what your take is on family-owned slash controlled public companies. It's a great question. I like this. He says, here are a few examples that pop to mind are Estee Lauder, Power Corporation, or the Westons with George Weston. I can reason both for and against owning these types of companies. Thanks, Joe. All right. Well, Joe, thanks for the question. And I love this question because it touches on a couple important things. And family-owned slash controlled businesses, many of them are very interesting and the structures of them are very interesting. And they, as you alluded to, have pros and cons. Like you just said in the last part of your question, you can see the reason for for and against it. And so I'm interested to hear your take on this, but I'll lead this, which is there are wonderful examples of lifelong family owner operated public companies. And so when we're talking about family businesses here, we're not talking about mom and pop shops for this question. We're talking about global multinational billion dollar public companies. So I looked this up and I found a cool thing from Harvard Business, which is the Harvard Business Review came up with this study and said 30% of all companies with sales in excess of 1 billion, examples like Walmart, Samsung, Porsche, come from family-owned public companies, which I thought was really interesting. That seems like pulling more than its weight in terms of how many public companies are, are family-owned. Here we go. Here's a quote. It says, when we looked across business cycles from 1997 to 2009, we found that the average long-term financial performance was higher for family businesses than non-family businesses in almost every country we examined. The simple conclusion we reached is that family businesses focus on resilience more than performance. They forego excess returns available during good times in order to increase their odds of survival during bad times. Really interesting. What's your take on that? Because I think that that's ultimately what makes these such good long-term compounders because there's alternative incentives and motivations at play here to make sure the family business lives on generationally. It's almost like human instinctual for these forces to be at play. Do you have a take on that? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know, like, I'd have to really dig into the data to really know. But what you read was interesting. I know one that comes to mind is Nordstrom. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think the 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 Canadian retailer. No, no, the American. Nordstrom's American. The retailer, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I I just see them in Canadian malls. So I'm like, they're Uh, uh, They actually, yeah, they were in the US a while back. I'm thinking of the Bay. I'm thinking of the Bay. 
But yeah, Nordstrom, they haven't fared all that well, but I guess that's more of a uh, byproduct of the retail space. Yeah, I guess I, I mean, I guess I can see their point. I can also see situations where the children take over and do a pretty poor job right. and the parents were actually managing yeah. that quite well or yeah so i i don't know it's kind of hard to say you just have to make sure that you're grooming your heirs well for the <laughs> yeah business. exactly yeah yeah i think it's more that yeah and that's what i mean by long-term focused and so the studies are quite staggering in favor of family-owned companies but i counteract that with a couple bad things as well but Harvard Business Review came out with five main learnings, which is funny because my list has literally seven things here. So let's uh, let's uh, let's remove that typo. There's seven main five-ish learnings here. Learnings, yeah. Five-ish learnings. Some of them more important than others. Number one, they are more frugal in spending. This is kind of like related, but number two is they typically have a higher bar for capex spending. So higher hurdle rates for a turn on invested capital. So just better at spending money, a little bit less reckless. I mean, I guess that makes sense. You're spending your own money. <laughs> like You're going you're gonna to be a little more careful with it. Carry less debt overall. Again, this goes back to don't blow up. Make sure this asset's around for a long time. They typically do less acquisitions. They're typically more diversified. They're typically more international, which I find interesting and slightly counterintuitive. And number seven, they're better at retaining talent. So this is what Harvard Business Review came back with after looking at every single family-run company that exceeds $1 billion in, in sales. So very interesting. All right. So now this is going into my opinion and, and no longer Harvard's opinion, but my opinion is you do have a good mix of things that I typically like to see. One, owner operators, meaning they have lots of skin in the game. They have lots of stock ownership. And that means that they're highly incentivized to think long term. Number two, a lot of them are founder led still. Like if the main founder CEO of the business when when they started, a lot of them are times are still running the company unless it's been passed on to the next generation yet. And so this can sometimes be a bad thing because as you alluded to, that handoff into the next generation. Is that going to be a bumpy handoff? We've seen a cough, cough, Rogers. That'd be not so pleasant, right? There's legacy incentive, right? Like your name might be on the door. Your name might be on the, the headquarters door. And so there's a legacy incentive there. And lastly here, they have long-term orientation because it feels like human instinctual to make your family name try to endure for a long time. Now, the bad things. I hinted at before, poor generational handoffs seem risky to me. Extremely risky to me. Number two is, if family members ain't getting along, that ain't good. I mean, look, most family situations I've ever come across that are extremely messy are usually because of money. And this is one of the risks, right? It's like, yeah, don't mix business and family and friends. And then you get these gigantic billion dollar public companies that are doing them. So as you alluded to, Joe, this is really on a company by company basis. Overall, my take on them is positive, And the data to back that up is positive. 
But there are hesitations to this as well. And it's really on a company by company basis. Some of them have been able to do this for a long time. And some of them passed it off to the third, fourth, fifth generation and still crushing it. Those ones, I'm a little bit more convinced that the company culture is intact, no matter who's running it at the helm. Yeah, and bad things, I'm just going to go exhibit A, Rogers. (laughs) (laughs) Rogers, yeah. Oh, and you remember when they were going at it, like him and his sister and like, oh Oh, my God. Oh, man, that was, what a a disaster. Ah, Yeah, I know. (laughs) Seems so disastrous. And this predates my time at Magna International, but when Frank Stronach stepped down, he had his daughter, Belinda Stronach, run the company and she was running the company and the CEO for like a year or something. Don't quote me on that exact number, but it it wasn't long. It was very short. And then I don't think that was working. So they had to quickly pivot and her husband became the CEO who who did a damn good job. Don Walker did a damn good job for a long time and recently retired. But it's so company by company specific like on I remember when I think she went for the leadership back in the day of the conservative party when I was really young yeah she's doing some great things she did more of a philanthropic role and and, Mm -hmm. I mean it makes sense right you have your family's worth billions of dollars and uh, you got to figure out how you can make a difference in in the community so good for her I don't know her but good for her yeah exactly (laughs) yeah no, no that's good Let's do another listener question from Tyson. Hey guys, I'm from Winnipeg and I've been a listener of your show for over a year now. Hey, thanks Tyson. We appreciate that. You recently talked somewhat bullishly about Google and Microsoft and I'm going to paraphrase the next part of the question, but it's basically saying you guys were talking bullishly about Google, Microsoft, and then brought a bunch of links to my attention about counter opinions about how these big tech companies are left for dead, growth is dead, growth is stalling. These companies had horrible earnings reports, you know, kind of like very bearish. And so Tyson was just like, what do you think about this? Like there's multiple conflicting opinions here. And I think that that's healthy. There always should be. And that's the market, right? And I went ahead and looked at those sources that you sent me. And I have two main responses. And the reason that I'm using this question is because it brings up an interesting discussion, which was, almost every negative connotation towards these big tech companies was largely short term. Now, they were talking about growth issues with Google and the ads business in a recession, talking about difficulties with that. 90% of the concerns were on a short to medium term. Look, it should be shocking to no one that ads is a cyclical business, right? If you're just learning that, like ding, ding, ding. Like, I mean, we did do talk enough. about that too, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Google was kind of bucking the trend until the recent quarter and still performing quite well. But we've seen the whole industry with a few exceptions here and there. Pinterest did pretty well overall, but they were also nowhere near the monetization of companies like Google's or Meta or uh, companies like that. Right. But as a whole, I mean, we've seen a reduction in ad spent and we talked about it, I think, on the last episode, too, where companies are seeing higher expenses, revenues kind of going down. So one of the things they will probably be reducing is marketing. And when you're reducing your marketing budget, ads will take a hit. So it's going to affect a company like Google at the very least, I think, short and medium term, depending how long this recession uh, is going to last. 
I think we can pretty much say that it's going to happen at this point. It's kind of consensus, uh, <laughs> not to be too bearish. Yeah, and I think that this lays out two important things here around setting expectations. And before I say that, it just brought to mind that this morning, Meta Facebook announced that yeah. they are laying off 11,000 employees. Did they lay off their CEO too? No, huh? he's still there. Okay. <laughs> Kuckerberg? <laughs> uh, no, no, he's still spending money ridiculously oh, okay. on yeah. Reality Labs. You got me there for a second. I had, to okay. actually, I had to triple check until I looked at your face and I'm like, oh, that's the, that's the sarcasm, Simone face. Oh, yeah. But, you, you know, we've been hinting at this, right? Like tech layoffs are, are, are here. Like they're definitely coming and saw a, a major one of 11,000 workers being laid off from from Facebook this morning. And hey, look, if that's affected to you, my condolences, what I'll say is that chances are you're a very skilled tech worker and people are still clawing at the bit to get your talent. So stay positive. All right. So where I'm going with this and why I picked this question is not to be around Microsoft and Google because whatever, sure. There are two main things that are really important here. One, this is your advantage when the market is very bearish on problems that are relatively like 12 to 18 months issues, like that's what the market looks at, right? It's only like, I always say like 18 months, that's what the market looks out. There's no science to that. It's just, that's, that's what I think. And generally, if you have a longer horizon than that, that's your advantage. That's one advantage that a lot of us can have is that we're willing to look out more than 12 to 18 months. So that's number two. And number two around setting expectations I guess this is relevant to Microsoft and Google is, look, these are trillion dollar companies. We shouldn't be expecting them to grow like they did over the last 10 years, in the forward 10 years. They're not the growth stocks of this decade. They were the growth stocks of the last 20 years. They're mature, highly profitable and gush cash and probably the best businesses ever invented. And that's why they're still so valuable is that they gush cash and they're utilities for the world today, these technology products. But that said, they're still growing. <laughs> like the cloud business is still growing 30 to 45% year over year consistently, depending on if you're looking at GCP, Azure, or AWS. And who's to say that's not going to persist for quite some time in the future. So to say that growth is dead, I just don't agree with that. And so it's a roundabout way of saying like set expectations. These are not going to be the growth stocks of the next 20 years like they were for the last 20 years. They're mature, highly profitable businesses that are very important and probably going to have a lot of staying power. And so that's their position in a portfolio, not trying to make another 100 bagger on a trillion dollar business. So set expectations and recognize that the market and the sources you sent me are looking 12 to 18 months largely. And so when you hear an opinion one way or another, think about the time frame. And same with us. When we say things that we think are great or bad, you know, is that a short-term opinion? Is that a long-term opinion? And recognize what game you're playing because not everyone's playing the same game. And that's what makes the space so noisy and hard to navigate. Yeah, and keep in mind too for those companies and big tech in general, right? They're producing so much cash flow. So even if growth yeah. does, yeah, if, even if growth does reduce by quite a bit, and say they only grow by 
long term, they only grow 5% a year at the top line, but they're still generating as much, if not more <laughs> cash flow. Like, well, I'm going to tell you now, like, surprise, surprise, they're going to be buying back yeah, shares that's or exactly, paying a dividend. That's exactly what I said to get. I was like, yeah. oh, Simone, oh no, shareholders, they'll only buy back $100 billion worth of stock in the next 12 months. What a tragedy that is for shareholders. This is the reality of a maturation curve of a company, right? And that's where they yeah. are today. Yeah, exactly. Now, I guess a little bit on a similar-ish topic, allocation. We have talked about allocating your positions in your portfolio and the relationship between diversification because clearly, yeah, it doesn't mean that you have 50 stocks that you're diversified if you know your allocation is all out of whack. So I wanted to talk about that because there's really a tons of different strategies you can take with investing. And one of the most common ones when it comes to equities are index investing, growth investing, or dividend investing. I think, or dividend, I would say value investing. They're kind of the main buckets, I think, that people will typically fall in. And I know some people like to stick to one strategy I love dividends too, and I know some people are very hardcore on just basically having only dividends, which is fine, but you can still have a kind of primary strategy while mixing in another strategy, and that's where allocation comes in. So let's take someone who wants to focus again on dividend-paying stocks, which is fine, but you might be missing out on companies that could be multi-baggers in the decade to come. If you're just focusing on dividend stocks, you're kind of going, you know, steady as she goes, getting a dividend, which is totally fine, but you're not going to get probably that multi-bagger, that 10, 15, 20x company in 10, 15 years. It's probably not going to be that dividend stock that you own, but that's where you can... It's just about setting like realistic expectations for what each horse in your portfolio can reasonably do. I, I think that I think this yeah. is so under-discussed, even from us. I think we, we should probably talk about it even more. Yeah, exactly. And that's really where allocation comes in because you can still keep that overarching strategy that's primarily focused on dividend stocks like I was just talking about, but still having a small allocation to growth stock. For example, you could dedicate 90% of your portfolio to blue chip dividend paying stocks and 10% to growth stock. There's a bunch of different ways you can structure this example. Just, you know, you could even do 80, 20, 95, 5, doesn't really matter. You can have them equally weighted or have some names that are higher allocation than others just based on your conviction and knowledge of the company. Now, for example, here you could, if you have that 90% of dividend stock, you can choose five growth stocks at 2% allocation each. So you have 10% in growth stocks and 90% in blue chips dividend stocks. And obviously, here not all growth stocks are created equal. Some will be profitable, some are not. Some are growing faster than others, the top lines, and so on. But even as a whole, let's say you pick the riskiest five growth stocks. Let's just assume you did that, right? Even if they go down by half, it's still not a major hit to your portfolio, assuming that your dividend stocks are remaining pretty stable. And that's usually why you'd want to pick dividend stocks, because they will be less susceptible to drawdowns. And Can I jump mad- in for your first yeah. second? It's not that they have to be dividend stocks. And I know you don't mean this. It's, you just mean well, like- Well, this is blue, an example. The blue yeah, chippers. Yeah. You blue just chips, mean like, yeah. yeah, the blue chippers, they don't have to be dividenders. But yeah, okay. I just wanted to jump in because yeah. I know that's what you mean. Yeah. 
Yeah. But mm-hmm. yeah, anyways. Go uh, on. Yeah, I was talking blue chip dividend stocks. I'm focusing more on dividends in this example. But coming back here, your maximum downside if you have 10% to strictly growth stocks here is that they all go to zero. So that's your maximum downside. So you wipe out that 10%. But again, assuming the rest of your portfolio remains relatively stable, obviously this year, you can see where these blue chip dividend stocks would have performed better, but still have negative returns, but better than the rest of the market. But even in that scenario, as long as that portion of your portfolio is performing well, then you can take a bit more risk by doing good allocation strategy that you can live with. So you have to think about the worst case scenario. And of course, it doesn't have to be 1090. You could do 80-20, 70-30. Again, it also varies what kind of dividend stocks versus growth stocks are you picking. It's just with allocation, you can really mitigate the risk. And I think that's really important because other extreme example here that I'll talk about is say you have 19 stocks. 10 are dividend blue chip stocks and nine are growth stocks. It may sound pretty even, but not necessarily because I haven't told you what the allocation is. If Mm -hmm. I tell you that the allocation for your growth stocks are 10% each, and then 90% of your portfolio is in those growth stocks, and then the 10 dividend stock represent 1% each for a 10%, then it's a completely different story That's the other extreme example of showing you that allocation is so important because if I just give you 10 blue chip dividend paying stocks and nine growth stocks, I think people just assume that you're kind of 50-50 in both. And that's not necessarily the case if your allocation is all out of whack. I think that this is so under discussed. You and I, we, we hit on it a lot in these deeper dives into how our our mental frameworks for investing like these episodes. And it's so under discussed because there's no context really when we talk about portfolio management or a growth stock that we like that has performed quite poorly. And the the context is that it's like one and a half percent position. And that's because the weighting is obviously so important, but the weighting should be tied to your conviction, right? Like that's how I do it. I I weight conviction and weighting in your portfolio because if you have a wide range of outcomes for a business or the performance can be truly asymmetrical where you're not going to need a huge position to make if your thesis plays out for it to come back with a mega huge return, then you don't need to size it at such a position that doesn't make much sense. And this is just so important. And this is why you and I talk about sizing your conviction accordingly to your ability to predict its outcome in the future. And if the the outcomes are wide ranging, then you can't size it at 100% or 50% or 80% of your portfolio. It's just a quick way to go broke. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You you have to, like, I always like to think in probability. So I like to think what are the probable outcomes? What's the most likely outcome? Is it positive, negative, vice versa? Try to assign a percentage range. That's how my brain works. But yeah, you don't have to look very far. If you go on Reddit, especially Wall Street bets, that's how people get wrecked, right? I always yeah. find it funny is that they'll be like, it's crazy. These, some of these posts is they'll be down like 
they invested 150k now they're down like 100,000 from that investment and they'll show and they'll have 10 positions one of them's like Microsoft and the mm -hmm. other nine are all these like crazy bets that they're taking and then surprise surprise they had allocated way too much to these crazy option bets or really yeah. risky companies and then they're down 75 60 whatever it is but massive amount so that's always i think just a a reminder to me just when i see that i just obviously i can't believe it and the reason i wanted to talk about allocation is i don't know if this is the general idea but i have a feeling when people think of someone else's portfolio what they invest in they automatically will hear like, oh, okay, this person has 20 oldings, 50 oldings. I think they automatically think that they're all equal weighted. Mm. I think that brain kind of goes by default and that's just not the case, right? When people Well, because if you have no context, you have nothing to base it on. Yeah. So the brain's just going to naturally equal weight those. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's uh, an assumption that a lot of people do. I mean, I could be wrong, but yeah, I think that's just a good thing to remind yourself that if someone has 20, 30, 40 stocks, if you don't have the allocation, I mean, okay, it's fine. They have this amount of holdings, but allocation plays a big part. And if you don't believe me, just go take a look at the S&P 500. Right. You'll see that certain companies have a much bigger allocation than others. Yeah, like Apple... And yeah, Microsoft, yeah. <laughs> yeah. like just so much weight into those names because market cap weighted, the index is market cap weighted, which I think seems like forgotten by a lot of folks who haven't looked at the index in a while, no, <laughs> haven't exactly. looked at the constituents yeah. in a while. No, this is perfect. And I think a great way to, to round up today's show, which is that context, it matters a lot, especially with weighting like the probability of you being wrong, because the probability of you being wrong on a name, like that's in the range of outcomes. You and I have been wrong on many stuff. We've been right about lots of stuff, but we weight our conviction in potentially being right more. Let's look at something that's a really small position for me, the trade desk, okay? The trade desk is a 1% position for me. It's done quite well. I mean, maybe it's a 2%, I got to check. It's a name that is specifically serving a gigantic growing market of ads, the ad business. It's an ad technology business. And it could become even much bigger than it is today. But if there is gigantic changes to privacy and we've seen what Apple can do, like just destroy ad tech businesses overnight based on like the permissions that they're able to give, that's something that's completely out of my control and really hard to assign probabilities to if that's going to happen. So sizing it anything more than that makes little sense for me. And since it could be such a gigantic business in the future, still led by Jeff Green, the founder, who's just a wizard, I don't need to size it at 10% if I'm right on the upside. And that's why people put like Berkshire Hathaway and these boring conglomerates at like such a heavy weighting compared to some of these like more asymmetric bets for this exact reason, because you have to hedge the fact that you're going to be wrong a lot as an investor. You're going to be wrong yeah. sometimes. And knowing that and having the humility matters. And this is a perfect segue to that context matters. And we disclose our portfolio to the exact position size in a percentage you and I do on jointci.com. Jointci.com, if you have not joined yet, 
is where Simone and I show our portfolio updates every single month. And you see in a spreadsheet, in a table, like this is worth this much. And then we have this. And that's useful context. Because if I say I own 10 stocks, that doesn't tell you enough. No. It really doesn't tell you enough, especially about the style of, of how the portfolio yeah. is being run. And so this is good stuff. Yeah. Because you don't know, right? If you don't know the allocation, you can own 10 stocks and one of them is 90% and the rest <laughs> is the 10% remaining. Like it doesn't tell you any info. Obviously, we think that's pretty rare that someone would do it that way. But clearly, some people on Reddit do it. So it does happen. The one thing that I'll say is like I have conflicting opinions on this, which is I have let positions become gigantic and own so much of the portfolio because I let winners run almost no matter what. Like I have a very strong bias towards letting them run and not trimming winners. That's just like how I think about the world. But whether that's I'm, right I've or wrong, trimmed. you've trimmed. <laughs> but you you've I, you've trimmed very smartly. I haven't yeah. had anything go up ten x yeah. in like couple months like you had with like Teladoc and you're like, I'm, this is ridiculous. I'm out, at least in terms of a trim. Yeah. So maybe if I was in that position, I would have, but I have a very strong bias towards letting winners run. Yeah. I think for the most part I do, it's pretty rare that I will trim, but I think I've mentioned that a long time ago. If you're losing sleep over a position that's too big, that's probably a sign that that's you should trim sign. that position <laughs> right there. Like I, I don't think it's the sleep like, test. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't think an investment should impact your quality of life. That's just my opinion. Mm. And Teladoc well was was starting to be so big that I was getting nervous in terms of the position that it was in my portfolio. And then you look at the multiple and you're like, it's 50 times yeah. EV to sales. Yeah. You're like, ugh. Yeah. Just the, the sizing it was versus my conviction versus the valuation. I still had conviction, but the valuation was making me nervous. So, yeah, so that's why I trimmed it. I didn't sell the whole thing. I probably wish I did at the peak, but you know, I still hold on because <laughs> I, I still yeah. keep a close eye on it. I think there's still some good opportunities ahead. They've had some headwinds. I won't hide that. I haven't hidden that. But yeah, that's the sleep test for me, I think is the best thing. Those are wise words from Mr. Belanger today, which is no position should negatively affect your quality of life. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. And those are wise words. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We appreciate y'all. I just hinted at jointci.com as our Patreon to support the show. You can hit us up with listener questions there as well and probably just answer them right there on the spot on the jointci.com Patreon page. And if you have not checked out stratosphere.io, time is tick-tock, tick-tock until we launch the new platform on November 28th. I just, I just mess up the date again. It's the 29th, November 29th. How many times have I done that now? I think three or four times. November 29th, time's ticking. Prices are going up. So use code TCI to get 15% off today's price and then it'll be locked in on a good deal. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.